Welcome to Mission Viejo Christian Church. Today, Pastor Mike Maiola is bringing the word to you. So open up your Bibles and listen in. I bet you never realized that you were sitting here because of a man named Barbie. Uh, <laughs> if you don't get that, you weren't paying attention. Um, thanks for that, Pastor Mike. Uh, as Pastor Mike said, we are wrapping up our series on Daniel called Clash of Kings, and I'm super excited um, that we, we get this opportunity to, um, to talk through this. Um, I'll give you a minute to pass those bags. How's, he, how's it going? <laughs> Good? Yeah? Uh, as Pastor Mike said, we have prayer night on Tuesday, so please make sure that you guys show up. We want to pray together as a family. Uh, we also have baptisms after service today, so uh, hang out, attend the baptisms, then swing by and patron our new donut shop, Royals. Uh, we could use it. <laughs> um, all right, looks like the bags are almost passed. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning, Lord. Uh, we thank you that we have this awesome opportunity to partner with you and what you're doing. Um, God, we pray that you would just speak to us, Lord. We give this time to you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So uh, ever since I was a kid, I have hated the feeling of being dirty. There's just something about being dirty or sticky or, or anything like that that just grosses me out. Uh, I'm a pretty average guy in my 20s, so uh, I'm probably gross by your standards. But when I feel dirty, I can't handle it. I can handle being messy. You know, I'll, I'll throw my, my dirty laundry into a pile at the foot of my bed, and that doesn't bother me. But I can't handle being dirty. This is one of the reasons I've always hated the beach. Uh, and that's probably controversial, borderline blasphemy, but I hate the beach because sand gets everywhere. If you spend two seconds at the beach, you will find sand for the next month. It, it just gets everywhere. You feel all gross. You go in the dirty ocean to wash it off, and then you get home, and you're finding sand for the next two months, and you're like, I didn't even wear this shirt to the beach. How is there possibly sand in here? And so I have always hated that feeling. Um, but as I got a little bit older, I, I became more aware of my sin. And I realized that as bad as it feels to be dirty on the outside, it feels so much worse to feel dirty on the inside. And so I, I became plagued with this awareness, with this feeling, with this, this stain on my soul. And I wasn't really sure what to do about it. And so I, I was ashamed of it, and I tried to hide it. I felt guilty about it. And the more that I tried to hide it, the worse it felt, the dirtier I felt, the more unclean I felt. Nothing that I could do made that feeling go away. And there'd be nights where I'd wake up in a cold sweat after having a nightmare where my mind just replayed those moments that made me feel unclean. I didn't know what to do. I felt like because of my sin, I wasn't good enough for God. I felt like because of how unclean I was, I felt like a hypocrite sitting in church. Um, if you've ever felt this, try being a pastor. Anytime you do something, uh, you know, when someone sees me get angry or, or, or I say something dumb, they go, oh, real nice pastor, Shane. And it's like, oh. And so I felt even worse. 
And I'd read passages like this, and I'd become even more aware of my uncleanness. Deuteronomy 23, 14 says, For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. I knew that my life was filled with things that would make God turn away from me. I know that that there's so much indecency in my soul that would make God walk away from me. That makes me too unclean for him to be among. And this idea of clean and unclean is a huge deal in the Bible. In Israel's culture, everything was classified into one of two categories, clean and unclean. Everything was either clean and holy and set apart and worthy to be presented to God, or it was unclean. It was dirty. It needed to be purified or destroyed. And Israel had uh, all kinds of laws because they had to be spotless. And so there are laws about uh, Israel's spiritual cleanness. There's laws about, you know, uh, keeping the Sabbath holy and not taking the Lord's name in vain and things like that. But Israel also had to be physically spotless. And so there's laws about like skin disease and bowel movements and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, read the Bible. <laughs> but some of Israel's most famous laws are about their dietary restrictions because they had to be clean and spotless. They couldn't even touch or eat an animal that was unclean. And so in Israel, there were clean animals like sheep and rams and bulls, and there were unclean animals like camels and shellfish. And the most famous of these unclean animals is probably the pig, right? Leviticus 11, 7 through 8 says this, And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. And that makes sense, right? Pigs are disgusting. If you were making a list of like the most unclean animals, pig would be pretty high on the list. They wallow around in their own filth. They eat slop. They make a bunch of gross noises. They smell. They're like a junior high boy. Or me, like, you know, six months ago before we got married. Uh, I'm reformed now. Um, but pigs are disgusting. And so God says, have nothing to do with them. Don't touch them. Don't eat them. They're gross. And so the way it would work is unclean animals, you, you totally disassociate with. But clean animals could be eaten, but more importantly, they could be sacrificed. And so uh, there was a whole industry in Israel built around raising animals to be sacrificed. So you take a, a pure animal like a lamb, and you would raise that lamb to be spotless, to be totally perfect looking, the model lamb. Then you would take it into the, the temple, and when you had committed some kind of sin, when you had defiled yourself in some way and were no longer clean, you would take that animal, you would touch it, you would impart your uncleanness onto that animal, and then you would kill it because the punishment for being unclean is death. And so you were imparting your uncleanness onto that animal. It was killed in your place. And then for a little bit, you were clean until you sinned again, and then you became unclean, and then you had to kill another animal. And so Israel is just like not a good place to be a sheep. <laughs> there are so many sacrifices every single day. When they opened the temple, it says that there were something like 140,000 animals sacrificed in one day. Imagine that. The imagery is like 
like priests are like wading knee deep through animal blood because they're just killing so many animals because the people are so unclean. And so they're killing and killing and killing and they're trying to be made clean. All of this is important background information for what we're about to read in the book of Daniel. If you've been with us for the last uh, couple weeks or if you were here back in November, we went, we've been going through the series called Clash of Kings. And the idea is we're talking about this pivotal moment in Israel's history known as the Babylonian exile. So Israel has trusted their human kings and they've been led astray and they've found themselves now in exile in Babylon. And the Babylonians are trying to strip the Israelites of their cultural identity. They're trying to stop them from doing the things that make them Israelites. And so one of these things is the daily sacrifice. They know how important it is for Israel to be clean. And so they're doing everything they can to make them unclean. As part of it, they've even destroyed the temple. And so all of Israel feels unclean. But the prophet Daniel, in reading um, the words of other prophets, he, he believes that this period of exile is about to end. And so he's getting excited because he thinks he's about to get to go home, that everything is going to go back to normal. God's going to restore Israel, rebuild the temple, and everything's going to be okay. But God has some bad news for him. And he tells him, hey, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. And so Daniel chapter 10, you, these angels appear to Daniel, and they say, hey, we've been sent by God to show you what's about to happen. And chapter 11 is the vision, and chapter 12 is the interpretation of that vision. So check out Daniel 11, uh, 29. Basically what is going to happen uh, in this vision is that a king in the north wages a war with a king in the south. And the two of them keep going back and forth and back and forth. And every time it looks like one of them is finally going to end this war, the other one makes a comeback. And so the war rages on. And then this happens. At the appointed time, he, talking about the king of the north, will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Skip down to verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. So, this king in the north looks like he's finally going to win this war, end the battle, but at the last minute, a new army, a third party from the west, swoops in, saves the southern kingdom. Dejected and upset, the king from the north stops by in Israel and does something called the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel has no idea what this means, but that's obviously a very ominous, scary-sounding term. And whatever this is, is going to be horrible. And as a result of this, this northern king is going to make himself out to be God, and he's going to make everyone treat him like he's God. So Daniel sees all of this, and, and he's obviously troubled, and he thought everything was going to get better, and now he's seeing this vision of this long, drawn-out war and all these people being lost and these horrible things happening and these atrocities committed in Israel. And so... Daniel is, is speechless, and, and he looks at the angels, and he says, what is going to happen? Why, why, why are you showing me this? 
Daniel 12, 8 through 13 says this. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the end of the day, until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will, will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So Daniel is haunted by what he sees, and he says, hey, uh, what's that abomination that causes desolation thing you mentioned? What, what is that about? And basically the angels say, hey, don't, don't worry about it, man. You're not going to be around to see it. You go do your thing. This is for the future. This is so that, that Israel understands what's coming. And so Daniel does just that. Eventually Daniel passes away, and for a while it looks like this prophecy is not going to happen. Israel gets released from their, their captivity. They're allowed to return home to Jerusalem. They go, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, they resume their daily sacrifices. Everything is great, but they remain under foreign influence. They, they still have uh, foreign occupation, but things are pretty good. And then 400 years after Daniel prophesies that this is going to happen, the vision comes true. This king in, in northern Greece uh, named Antiochus rises to power. And he starts a war with the southern kingdom of Egypt. And these two nations go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, it looks like Antiochus is going to defeat Egypt and take them as part of his empire. But just before he can defeat them, the Romans show up and they threaten to, to wage war against Greece if he continues to attack Egypt. And so he's not in a position of strength to be able to do that. He calls off the war and he loses. But while he's fighting this war in Egypt, this rumor starts spreading in Israel. And they say, hey, I heard that Antiochus guy died in Egypt. That means there's no one watching us. There's no foreign ruler oppressing us. So let's take back our land. So the Israelites make the mistake of staging a coup. And they, they go and they try to, to liberate the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Antiochus is pretty upset that he just lost a war. He's looking for a fight, and he hears that these Israelites are disrespecting him and saying he's dead and trying to take his land. So Antiochus shows up in Jerusalem, and he slaughters a bunch of Israelites, and he marches into the temple, and he decides that he wants to do the thing that will hurt them the most. And he commits the abomination that causes desolation. He sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he brings in a pig, and he puts a pig on the holy altar of God and sacrifices it to Zeus. Why would he do that? The point was he wanted to hurt them in a way that couldn't be undone. He wanted to stain them. He wanted them to know that no matter how many sheep they sacrifice, no matter how many prayers they say, they could never be clean because he had done the irreversible. And then he props himself up as a god he starts calling himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. 
And he says, I am the embodiment of God. I can do whatever I want. I can march into the temple and I can sacrifice whatever I want and there are no repercussions. He ruins everything. He stains the entire system with this one act. The sacrifice of the pig makes the clean unclean. And when we think that we are God, when we walk around like, like I'm Shane Epiphanes, like I am God manifest, we end up like him, offering pigs on a holy altar and making everything unclean. And I think that that may be where many of us find ourselves today. Maybe it's something you did, something that, that happened in the past that you've carried that guilt with you. That, that thing that when I even say, you know, there's something that makes you unclean, that first thought that rushes into your head and you say, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Or maybe it's something that you continually do. Maybe it's not a one-time thing. Maybe you're stuck in a cycle of doing that thing that you said you're not going to do anymore. But it makes you feel good for a minute. And then it's followed immediately by shame and guilt. And you promise you won't do it again, but then you do. Whatever it is, we're all in the same boat. We have all become unclean. We have all been marked by sin in one way or another. And we've tried, and we've tried, but we just can't seem to be clean again. We try really hard to be good people, because maybe that'll balance it out. Maybe if I do enough good, it'll erase that thing that I did. It'll erase those terrible things that I do. But what we quickly learn is there's not enough good to ever make the bad go away. And this is how it was for Israel. They spent thousands of years sacrificing sheep and rams and bulls, and no matter how many animals they killed, no matter how much blood they shed, it was never enough because there was always a remnant of sin. They never got fully clean. It's kind of like, um, I guess I'll be real. Uh, I have student debt, and I have the option to pay off the interest or make larger payments that actually go towards paying off the debt. The way this sacrificial system works is like making interest-only payments. You are not even making a dent in the debt. You're only temporarily holding off from the collections officer showing up at your front door. And that's what Israel was doing. They weren't doing anything to erase their debt. They were just delaying God coming and bringing judgment upon them for another day. But no matter how many animals they sacrificed, it would never be enough because even the animals were sinful. Even the animals were, were, were a product of a broken world that is tainted by sin. The only way to truly become clean was for something pure, something holy, something 100% free from sin to be sacrificed. But nothing like that existed. Everything in creation was tainted with sin. And then God does something crazy. God, as the only being outside of this, as the only being who wasn't part of creation, as the only being untouched by this sin, he comes to earth in the form of a man, Jesus. And it's so crazy because that God who we were describing earlier, who's so holy and so perfect that everything around him has to be perfect, otherwise he'll turn away. He's now entering into this dirty, 
unclean world. <laughs> He's walking through mud and through dirt. This, this time period, the roads were disgusting. They were just dirt roads where all the animals and people walked down. And so it, it was just gross. And yet the God of the universe who was so clean was walking down those streets. And not just that, but he stops and he's having dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors. Somehow, in the midst of all the unclean, he is so pure and holy that he stays clean. And he lives this perfect life and he upholds this law that we were describing. That law was impossible. That law was meant to show you how unclean you are. It was meant to expose your sin, but because there was no sin in him to expose, he remained clean. And he becomes the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. He becomes the only being ever fit to take away the sin of the world. And he chooses to lay down his life. And so Jesus is stripped naked and beaten and nailed to the cross. And that God who was so clean and pure and holy now finds himself naked, covered in blood and sweat and tears and the spit of his enemy. The clean becomes unclean to make the unclean clean. Jesus sacrifices that pure life in order to save us. And it's incredible. And because he is God, he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave, proving that he is God. While Antiochus Epiphanes claimed to be God manifest and thought he could sacrifice whatever he wanted, Jesus Christ proves that he is God with us and sacrifices himself. And the contrast becomes incredible. And it's not just that, but Jesus' sacrifice is so powerful and so eternity-altering that it changes everything. Nothing is the same. It makes the entire sacrifice system irrelevant. If you pay off the whole debt, you don't have to keep making interest payments. That's what this is like. It's a one-time act that changes everything. Hebrews 9.25 says this, and nor did he, Jesus, enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus died to make us clean, and it is a one-time act because his sacrifice is that powerful. It changes everything. And we see this reflected in his people in Israel. They were forbidden from having uh, interactions with dirty Gentiles. They were supposed to keep themselves separate from the rest of the world to try to stay clean. And so there's this moment after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back into heaven where a Gentile man is looking for one of Peter's disciples, or one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, 
And, and God gives him this vision to illustrate how everything is different now because of this sacrifice. Acts 10.9 says this, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. God has taken the unclean and made us clean. His sacrifice is so powerful that it changes everything. And so God, in this moment, gets mad. He's not about to just stand there and let Peter insult his work and let Peter doubt the power of his gospel. God looks at him and he says, do not dare call anything impure that God has made clean. Don't question me like that. I have made the impossible possible. I have loved these people so much that I have died to change their very nature. Don't go back. That's amazing. And this is the same cleanness that is being offered to us today. In this same way, we have a God who loves us so much that he became unclean for our sake, that he sacrificed his perfect life to pay our debt. And now, in those moments where we feel the guilt and the shame from the past, in those moments when we run into people who knew the old us and want to say, hey, you're not different. I remember who you are. We have a God that gets angry on our behalf and says, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. I don't think we always understand this. I think we get that Jesus wipes our, our slate clean, but we don't understand what that really means. Let me show you. Rachel, could you come up here? This is my wife, Rachel. You can give it up for her. All right, so pretend this is my, my heart, my soul. It's blank. As I sin, I can feel the weight of those sins sticking to me, right? This is that uncleanness, that guilt, that shame that we talked about earlier. I can feel all of these things on my soul. And when we get saved, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we accept his sacrifice, it's like he peels them off. It's like he gives us a clean slate. He wipes away all the sin of the past, right? And this is a great feeling. I feel amazing. I feel so much lighter. It's all good. But after about 30 seconds, what happens? I sin again, right? And all of a sudden, it all comes back. And now I feel the weight. And now I feel guilty, and now I feel like, oh, maybe I'm just a hypocrite. I'm just abusing his grace. I don't really appreciate what he did for me. I'm such a bad person. Jesus, please forgive me. And then he peels him off. And then I, 
Then I feel great again, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Jesus loves me. And then 30 seconds later, I sin again, and he puts them back on. Okay. And we get stuck in this cycle of trying to figure out how to get these, these magnets on and off and on and off. We keep putting them back on. We pray that Jesus takes them away. We put them back on. We think maybe if I go to church, that'll take one away. We put them back on. We think maybe if I sing enough worship songs, if I read my Bible enough, if I do this. And so there are moments where as a church, we come together and we're aware of how many magnets are on our whiteboard at that moment. And we feel like hypocrites or we feel like we can't worship that day or we feel like we have to withdraw from the community or I'm not good enough to get baptized or I'm not clean enough to do these things because I know how many magnets are on my whiteboard. That's not how it's supposed to be. In the moment that we get saved, Jesus doesn't just wipe away the slate. He gives us a new nature. He changes us. He makes us new creations and gives us a new heart and a new nature. And so now, go ahead, as I sin, keep going. Keep going. Put them on. Thank you. Now, as I go through life, nothing sticks to me anymore. There is no condemnation against me. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. And so we spend so much time carrying around a whiteboard and keeping track of our sin and beating ourselves up and feeling ashamed and feeling guilty and feeling like a bad Christian and, and tormenting ourselves with these thoughts when Jesus is saying, look down at the whiteboard, dummy. There's nothing there because I made you clean. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. You can't outsin Jesus' sacrifice. And he gets insulted when we doubt it. When I say, yeah, I know, God. I know you died for me, but I feel I'm just a bad person and I'm just a sinner and I can't. And he says, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. Jesus has changed our very nature. Ephesians 4.17 puts it like this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is Paul saying, you have a new nature. You're not that old person anymore. Stop going back to that old stuff. Not because it'll stick on to you, not because it'll make you a bad Christian or unsaved or, or unclean again, but because it's distracting you from living the new life you're supposed to live. We have been made clean. We need to stop offering pigs on the altars of our hearts. God has purified our temples and made us a dwelling place of his spirit. We need to stop 
wallowing in our filth and move in this new direction. Some of you may have been surprised when you became Christians that uh, like going to church was still boring, that like reading the Bible was still hard, that prayer still felt like you were talking to the ceiling sometimes, that getting in a room full of 500 strangers and singing a song you've never heard is still weird. Like some of you may have been surprised by that. That, you know, why don't we, as soon as we get saved, it's just, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. Let's read the whole book of Psalms, brother. Why didn't we all turn into Ned Flanders as soon as we got saved? Well, we've spent a lifetime learning how to desire this lifestyle. It doesn't instantly happen where we desire this one. I'm reading this book for school right now that talks about um, uh, Christian education and kind of how we're approaching it all the wrong way. And one of the things that it points out is that we are primarily desiring creatures. That regardless of our thoughts and our beliefs, it's our desires that really control our actions most of the time. And that we, we develop this worldview. We develop a, a, a picture of what life should be. And then all of our actions, conscious or subconscious, are geared towards accomplishing that life. And that those actions actually shape us to want the thing that they're aimed at. Uh, you know, think about it. This is why um, in school we have kids say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Because we want them to love their country. And if you ask a six-year-old, hey, what's the definition of a republic? They're going to say, I don't know. But if you ask them, do you love your country? They're going to say yes. Because they've every day have stood with their classmates, they put their hand on their heart, they've said the pledge. The practice shapes the desire. And it's the same for us. And so the practices that we introduce into our system shape our desires. And if those practices are aimed towards that old lifestyle, our desire for that old life is going to grow. But if those practices are aimed towards this new life, living out this new nature that we've been given, our desire for this new life is going to grow. So that's part of the application for this morning. This morning, I want you to do a couple things. First, if you have never accepted Jesus' sacrifice, if you've never traded in your magnetic whiteboard for that poster board, if you've never said, Jesus, I'm tired of trying to be good enough, I can't do this, I need you to be the sacrifice instead. That's step one. That's where it starts. We're going to have some people up here after service who would love to talk with you and pray with you and, and walk you through what that looks like. And once you've done that, we got to stop offering pigs on the altars of our hearts. And we need to worship Jesus instead. Worship the lamb instead of the pig. And that looks like a lot of things. But one of the ones I want you to focus on this morning is serve. Go serve. Out at Connection Point after service today, um, you can go up and, and say, I want to get involved at the church. I want to start serving and we'll find a place for you to serve. And service is one of the biggest ways that you're going to start to shape that desire, and you're going to start being able to walk out that new nature that you have. And the last thing is this. I want you to let go of the past. And that's really hard. And I'm sure there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Here's one thing I want you to try. Sometime this week, go home. Get alone with God, get into a quiet place, and pray through what we're talking about. 
talk to him about the, the stains that are on your heart, the magnets that are on your whiteboard. Ask him to take those. Thank him that his sacrifice is enough. And then what I want you to do is I want you to picture that moment. I want you to picture the moment that you regret, the moment that causes you so much shame and guilt, whatever that may be for you. Alcoholism, addiction, abuse, neglect, self-loathing, what, what, whatever it is for you, whatever the thing that you carry with you, picture the moment of that happening. And then I want you to picture Jesus walking into the room. And I want to picture him taking the sin of that moment, taking the hurt and the pain and the guilt and the shame and the weight of that moment and nailing it to the cross. And then I want you to picture him looking you right in the eyes and saying, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. And give that moment to Jesus. And don't take it back. The temptation is to give it to him for a little bit. And then later when we're laying in bed at night and our thoughts are racing and we're reminded of how bad we are, we want to take it back from him. Let him have it. Jesus became a human walking in the mud and the mire, being stripped naked, being beaten, being killed, being sacrificed so that we could be made clean again. We have to accept that. We have to live in this new life, walk away from the old life we were living and turn to him instead. And we have to give that up to him. You have been made clean. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what people say about you or have said about you. It doesn't matter because you have a God who is looking at you and saying, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who was so holy and so pure that your sacrifice changed everything. We thank you that you loved us despite our uncleanness, despite our rebellion and our sin. God, we thank you that you have given us a new nature that can never again be made unclean. God, I pray that you would remind us of that daily. God, I pray in the moments where the guilt and the shame creep up, in the moments where we want to take it back and we want to, we want to dwell on the past, that you would look, to, look at us, press it on our hearts, and remind us, God, that you have made us clean. Lord, I pray that you'd give us opportunity to worship you and to serve you as a result of this. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in your name. Lord Jesus Christ, amen. We're so glad you were able to join us today. If you'd like more information on this teaching or any other teaching, check out our website at mvcchome.org.